you stand. Good, thank you. What a great reminder about the big picture point of life, the source of our life, responsibility in light of the source of life being God. So glad that you're here. Grateful to be in worship with you today. Um, raise your hand if you like a Bible. We'll be in Genesis chapter 12 to begin, which is right at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Um, also, tucked into these Bibles are communication cards. If uh, you'd like to hand off a communication card with an updated address or anything like that, a comment, uh, please go ahead and do that. We'll collect those again um, in a little bit after I speak. Looks like there's one here in the middle, Bob or Nick. And then, um, what was it? Oh, yeah, the reading plan. We're, there's two weeks left in our fall reading plan. We're three weeks in. We've got two weeks remaining. There are copies of this reading plan all over the place, all the tables. They may even, the ushers may have them. And I just really want to encourage you, as school has started and things have really picked up in terms of the intensity, to continue to try to lean into this and, and spend some time reading these texts that prepare us for the sermon coming up. Several of you have shared how, it, how it's helpful. Uh, the preaching's better if you kind of have a sense of what it's going to be about. And uh, you've been kind of preparing your heart and mind around a certain topic for the week. And then there's these really cool videos that we've been using as well. So I um, want to recommend that to you once again. All right. Great. Uh, so this last week, several families in our community celebrated wedding anniversaries. I've, I've considered at times just, just asking people to share because uh, it's often a big deal. It's like 50 years. There was a 65 recently. Last week, two people, uh, the Daltons. Uh, Dustin and Shauna, and the Campeses, Robin and Carlos, they both celebrated their anniversaries, eight years and two years, respectively. And the reason those two popped out to me was because I officiated both of those weddings. And so you have a memory of the experience, and then you hear it's their anniversary, and, and that's, uh, it's fun to celebrate that. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's, there's a ton that goes into weddings, and the few hours following a wedding, everybody's commenting about you know, the dress, the details, anything silly that happened, any mistake that happened, anything dumb that the, the preacher says, you know, accidentally or whatever. Um, they always talk about the details. But a few years later, there's really only a couple things that matter. There's really only a couple things that people remember. And it, and it really it comes down to this. A wedding comes down to this. It's, it's a promise. That's what it is. It's a promise. Uh, the, the declaration of intent, the, you know, do you, Miles, take this woman, Michelle, to, that's, that's the, I'm about to make a promise. And then your wedding vows, that's the promise. And then there's the, pronounce, the pronouncement. You know, husband and wife, that's a result of the promise. The whole thing's about a promise. And um, we spend a lot of money, we dress it up, we, we throw huge parties, and that's all great. But any wedding and any marriage really ultimately comes down to this. It's just a promise. And, and we understand the idea of a promise, right? Kids understand the idea of a promise. Somehow early on in life, I don't know how, but this idea of making a promise and keeping a promise becomes part of the way we kind of interact with people. And it's early. Like, I remember my kids being really young. Dad, can we play baseball? Yeah, we'll play baseball after dinner. Okay, do you promise? And, and, and they're just like, yeah, yeah, I promise. And then for a while, for my bigger kids, it was pinky promise. Like, as if doubt had already been introduced into the equation, as if we already are kind of wondering, is he going to do what he says? I don't know what that says about me, probably not anything very good. Um, so there's this, there's, this, there's this dynamic, there's this relational dynamic um, characterized by the making of promises, the keeping of promises that I think we all kind of get on a really native level. Let me, let me just update you as to where we've been the last two weeks in case you've missed it. We're in a, in a series called Five Words. 
explain the past and the present, the future of all things. The teaching, um, we're trying to teach the whole Bible in just five words, which can be really challenging to get a big sense of the big, or a, a concise sense of the big story of the Bible, since it's a collection of over 60 books written thousands of years ago by a bunch of different authors on the other side of the world in different languages than our own. Uh, but the story of God revealing himself, God's self, to us, humanity, is so important. And one of the reasons that it's important is because we find our true story by understanding the bigger story of God. And so we're in the middle of this series, and we're trying to cover the whole Bible in just five words. And there are a variety of true ways that we could do this, right? In other words, the five words aren't like in relief in Scripture. But some of them are especially clear, like the first word. The first word is good. This is how the story begins. If you miss the fact that the story begins with the word good, if somehow you, as many of us have, instead get the idea that in the beginning it was bad, then your understanding of God gets messed up, your understanding of life gets very confused as a result, and it's going to lead to all kinds of problems if you believe that in the beginning it was bad. Good is crucial because it reveals the, original, or it reveals the nature of God, and good is crucial because it reveals the original purpose of all things that God created. In the beginning it was good. The second word is broken. This was a heavy topic last week. It's critical to understand if we're going to have a chance at surviving the difficult realities that we experience in life. It's critical for us to understand the brokenness that we see around us, like disease and heartbreak and wars and hatred and toxic environments, that this is not the way it was supposed to be. If you took one thing out of last weekend, I hope you went away with that phrase. It's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. This is, not the way it's, this is not the way it was designed. Selfishness or sin, which I described last week, as what happens when we think I'm right and God's wrong. That's the core problem. And that problem has become so deeply embedded in the human condition that we're all affected by it. We're all infected by it. And the result of this core problem is that what was once very good is now broken. And, and that's sad. That's sad. So the question I want to address today is this. How will a good God deal with a broken world? That's the question for the morning. How will a good God deal with a broken world? And the answer I want to suggest to you is this. God makes a promise. That's how, that's how he's going to deal with it. God makes a promise, and he reiterates that promise again and again and again and again and again all through the rest of the, the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament. And if we summarize the Bible in just five words, we could say that the first word is good. That's Genesis 1. The second word is broken. That's Genesis 3. And the third word, which covers the rest of the Old Testament, and that's a big sweeping summary, I realize. But I would suggest that the, the, the third word is the word promise. Because the rest of the Old Testament, specifically, is the story of God making and keeping his promise. So, I hope you're asking, what is God's promise? He promises a bunch of things through scripture, but I would argue that at the core of all of the promises that God makes is the promise of relational commitment. It is the promise of relational commitment, the promise to be with you and stay with you no matter what. That's God's promise. And the way it shows up, the vernacular, the words that are used over and over again is this. I will be your God and you will be my people. We read this over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. So God creates a world that is good. People turn away from God. And then the surprise is that God does not turn away from people. 
That would be what you would expect to happen. But that's not what happens. In fact, the first thing that God does after Adam and Eve rebel against God in Genesis 3, the very first thing, what is his reaction going to be to the original sin in the story? Well, his initial reaction is he, he, he calls out to them. He looks for them. He's still pursuing them. That's powerful. Uh, let me tell you a story from a long time ago. Uh, we were living in Sacramento, and a good friend of ours came over to our house because it had just been our anniversary, and she wanted to give us an anniversary gift. And uh, so the three of us sat at our little tiny kitchen table in this little house that we had in the, um, off of El Camino, and uh, she, she gave us this big, big box, and Carmen unwrapped this box, and it was this beautiful glass round vase. I mean, it was just gorgeous, right? Carmen loves flowers. If I'm on my game, I'm bringing her flowers. Our friend knew this, right? And so she knows that. So she brings her this beautiful, gorgeous hand, this like blown glass bulb. And, and then the top of it was like this slit so that the flowers would go in and just fan out really beautifully. I mean, it was just, I'd never seen anything like it. It was really gorgeous. And it was super thoughtful of our friends to give this to us. So as we're admiring this gift, I don't know how it happened, but like we're, oh, that's so cool. I knock it off the table and it explodes into like a thousand pieces. I know. It was so awkward. It was so bad. Yeah, it was so bad. The timing was ridiculous. If you were outside our kitchen window and you didn't have sound, this is what it would look like. I mean, it was, it was it. It was like Rachel gives a gift to Carmen. Carmen unwraps the gift. Nathan knocks it on the floor. That's what it looked like. It, looked, it was just bad. And I just, I mean, the thing, it only survived for like 10 seconds. We didn't even say thank you. And it was destroyed. It was, it was so awkward. I felt terrible. I felt really embarrassed. I was worried about what our friend was thinking. You know, this young single girl that I know spent a bunch of money on this thing because and I was worried about what Carmen was thinking, right? It's so bad. It was like really good for seven seconds, and then it was really bad. Yeah. It's like one of those Southwest airline commercials, you know? You want to get away? Yeah. That was me. I wanted to get away. I wanted to leave. I wanted to hide. I wished that I wasn't there. I didn't want to experience this feeling anymore. And, and, and I was reflecting on that, it just popped into my head this week, this story that I haven't thought about literally like 12 years, 15 years probably. But when you feel like it's all your fault, you, you don't feel good about yourself, and then you start thinking other people don't feel good about myself, and then you start thinking maybe, maybe even God doesn't feel good about me, right? Maybe even God doesn't like me. When you feel like you've really messed up, uh, when you feel like you've done something that you're ashamed of or that, that you just feel like that was just not my, that was not my best moment. That's when the deception begins. That's when the, the thinking starts to sort of germinate. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be around me anymore. They probably don't want to be around me anymore. I'll bet God doesn't even want to be around me anymore. But that's not the true story. That's not the true story. And some would push back and say, what do you, what do you mean that's not the true story? Adam and Eve get cast out of the garden right away, right? That's what happens next is they sin against God and he casts them out of the, the garden. Yes, but see, here, that is what, that's what happens, in this, but here's where we're confused. And this is really important. I hope you write this down. The natural consequences to our actions are not the same as God's heart for us. The natural consequences to our actions are not the same 
as God's heart to us, and any good parent knows what I'm talking about. Your son or daughter can do something wrong, clumsy, uh, rebellious. They can break something good. There will be natural consequences. But that doesn't mean you don't love them anymore, right? That would be ridiculous. Of course that's not what... That would, and yet, it's like we're better parents than we are children of God. It's like we get it when it comes to our, our own kids, and we just can't get it when it comes to being children of God. We're just not sure we really believe that. What's so important, it's big problems arise when we confuse the two, when we think that God doesn't like us because of our sin. And what's so important for us to consider this morning is this. How does God respond when we break good things? How does God respond when we break good things, when we make a mess of stuff? And and the bottom line is this. He makes a relational commitment. That's how he responds. And he reiterates it over and over again. I will be your God and you will be my people. This has not changed anything. So let me show you how this rolls out. And then let me reflect briefly on why this matters so much. Um... I'm going to hit about five or six texts, about 30 seconds each. So this is going to go fast. Don't worry about the details. If you were to make a highlight film of the Bible, one of the scenes you would definitely want to make in that highlight film is Genesis 12, the calling from God. God calls Abram. It begins, it's a very important scene. God calls Abram. He says, leave your country, leave your people, leave your father's household, come to the land that I will show you. This is the beginning of the Hebrew people. This man named Abram, his name is changed to Abraham. Here's the promise. God says this, I'll make you into a great nation, I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is a big promise. It gets into God's purpose for Abram, gets into God's bigger plan for the world, but at the core of this promise is this remarkable reality, God is choosing to be with Abram. I mean, we just talk about a really simple, basic level. This is God choosing to be with him. And this essential promise gets repeated over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Listen for the theme. This is Genesis. The next book is Exodus. Moses is trying to to free the slaves from Egypt. His first try doesn't go so well. It makes Pharaoh really mad. He gives the slaves more work to do. They're like, thanks a lot, Moses. Your effort to help us has actually made our life harder. And then God tells Moses to say this, I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. The next book is a book called Leviticus. God's been laying out his law, his rules, instruction for the people. And he says this to them, I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. You hear this? It just keeps coming. In Jeremiah, he's a prophet in the Old Testament. He's got a really hard assignment. People are rebelling big time. But he says this to them. He's speaking for God, and he says, Obey me. I will be your God. You will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you so that it will go well with you. At the end of Jeremiah, nobody has changed their mind. Nobody has changed their mind. But God promises a future restoration of the people of Israel so that you will be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel is a prophet that comes after Jeremiah. By now, the natural consequences of their rebellion have resulted in them being carted off again to slavery in another place. And 
But through Ezekiel, God reiterates the promise again. This is Ezekiel 36. You will, you will live in the land I gave your forefathers, God says to them. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Throughout the Psalms, we hear this promise repeated in songs and prayers and poems. Um, in history books in the Old Testament, like the book of Judges, we see this promise lived out in a pattern of rebellion, followed by a reiteration of a promise from God, I'll be your God, you be my people. Jesus teaches this about God, probably in his parables. Probably the most famous example is the parable from Luke 15 about the prodigal son. This is a story that Jesus tells to prostitutes and, and sin, uh, tax collectors and notorious sinners to tell them what God's like. Because they've been told because of their sin, God's rejected them. God doesn't like them, doesn't want to be their bad news for God. So Jesus is correcting this view with this story about this young man who demands his inheritance of his father before his dad's even dead. He goes off, he lives recklessly, burns up all the money, ends up in a terrible place. The whole time, the father's just scanning the horizon, looking for his son. His heart hasn't changed. Finally, the son comes to his senses, returns home, and he's embraced by the father. He's forgiven. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Like the, the most... Almost, you might say, the most classic or notorious story of rebellion, the prodigal son, um, doesn't change the heart of the father. That's part of, that's part of the point of that. And all through scripture, we see this, this, all through this great story of God, you find this good God coming to people, responding to our rebellion by calling us to him, engaging our brokenness, not shunning us because of it with the promise to be with us and to remain with us no matter what. Now, why is this so significant, friends? Why is it so important that we, that we know this third word of the story? And that we, we this is probably the more, most complex of the five words. It's essentially trying to summarize this doctrine of the covenants or the promises that God makes. Why is it so important that we get our hearts and our heads around this? It's, it's, it's this. Here's why. Because we need to know that God doesn't respond to our brokenness the way we respond to one another's brokenness. Makes any sense? We need to know that he's different. Okay? We need to know that. There's a prophet in the book Numbers. His name's Balaam. And he says this. God's not human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? In other words, God doesn't respond with the kind of situationally dependent inconsistency that is so common with us with people or put another way we hear this a lot god's love is unconditional it's unconditional it doesn't change when you rebel against him and we need to know this and, and i think we we learn it when we're kids um, we learn how people feel about us when we break our promises when we don't follow through with the things that we say we're going to do in other words, if I were to make a promise to you and then I break that promise, you probably don't really want to be with me anymore. You probably are going to change the way you feel about me. You probably won't trust me if I'm breaking promises to you. And so what we do is we take that common experience that we have with broken promises, and all of us have it, and this broken way of relating with others, and we place it on God. I mean, psychologists will call that transference. We take our broken relationship with people, and we say, well, God must be like that too. And then we interact with God the way we interact with other broken people. 
And, and when we do, it's easy to end up with a really messed up image of God, an incorrect image of the heart of God. And it's easy to imagine this God who is rejecting us because of our rebellion against him, who is mad at us because of our sin, our brokenness. It's easy to think of God as somebody who doesn't want us around because we just, we just made a mess of things. We just broke that beautiful thing he gave to us. And, and I think that this is so important um, because the, the question that is usually behind the questions that people ask when they are honest enough with themselves to, to ask spiritual questions, the question behind the question is usually something like, how does God feel about me? Or, or maybe, what does God want from me? How does God really feel about me? What does God want from me? And it's, this shows up like this. You know, I messed up, I sinned, I, I dishonored God. So, you know, how does, how does he really feel about me now? What does he want me to do now? You know, I've been doing my own thing for so long. I haven't even really acknowledged God's presence in the world for so long. He hasn't been a part of my life. I wonder how he feels about me. I wonder what he wants from me. Or sometimes if you uh, look at it as a parent with a child, maybe your kid has been grounded. They've been punished. They've disobeyed. You've yelled at them because you're frustrated with them. Their brother said, I'm never playing with you again, you know, for the rest of your life. Nobody likes them. They're in their room. And they're wondering, I wonder how God feels about me. Uh, maybe they couldn't articulate that at that moment, but, but there's this deep sort of, if you apply this to the spiritual, then of course we just go right to God. How does God feel about me? What does God want from me? What is God thinking about me right now? And according to the promise that God makes, and according to the, God, the promise that God reiterates over and over and over again throughout the Bible, what he wants us to know, what he wants our children to know, is that his heart is always for us. His heart is always toward us. The way he feels about us doesn't change. It's always love, no matter what. And fundamentally, what he wants from us is a relationship, right? It's the same basic things. And yet it's the same, it's the same basic things that get challenged and doubted all of the time because of our own brokenness. It's like God saying, yes, I know. I know you sinned. I know you messed that up. I know that was a beautiful gift. I spent like half a day picking it out for you and you just knocked it on the floor. In your carelessness, that doesn't change the fact that I love you. It doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change the fact that I want a relationship with you. That's why I'm here. That's why I've awakened your heart and your mind to me. So friends, the, the point this morning is this, that we can always know the direction that God is heading. We can always know the direction God is heading we can always be confident of the direction that God is moving. The theme of God's promise that runs all throughout scripture reveals the heart of God, the faithfulness of God. He's always engaging our brokenness. His heart is not altered by our failures or our faithlessness. Our lack of faith does not change his faithfulness. We can always know the direction that God is moving. He's moving toward us. Always Without exception, God is pursuing us, moving toward us, always. He hasn't had to stop and think, well, what about Bob? He really had a rough moment last week, right? He's not considering, well, you know, except for maybe Chris Henyon, because it's no, it's not on the radar. It's unconditional, total, I am moving towards you no matter what happens, right? You can count on that. He will never stop. This is his promise. 
I imagined, you know, sometimes I think about this through different people's eyes. I was thinking about this through my kids' eyes. One of my, you know, I think, I think some people have an especially hard time accepting the love of God. Um, and I imagined uh, a child saying, God, how do you feel about me? I, I wondered what would happen if I could actually introduce, ha have one of my kids or one of you or me walk into a room and just actually have this real conversation. How do you feel about me, God? And I, I said, well, I love you. And I imagine the kid saying, really? You really love me? And I would say, yes, all of the time, no matter what. I love you. Even my discipline of you is rooted in my love for you. Yes, I love you. you. You love me even when I'm bad. Yes, I love you even when I'm bad or when you're bad. I love you and I always want to be with you. Imagine the kid saying, promise? And God would say, I promise. Absolutely, I promise. Let me end with this graphic story from the Old Testament. It's helpful because it's graphic. It's hopefully memorable because it's graphic. It's, it's in chapter 15 of Genesis. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to summarize it. It's a little bit after God makes that initial promise to Abram, the one who starts the family of the Hebrew people, right? And so God has made this promise to Abram. It's been a long time since he did it, even though it's only three chapters in Genesis. And so Abram's kind of struggling to believe it. Is this really going to happen? Should I count on this? Did he really choose me? Have I really been has, has he really said, yes, I love you, and my plan is, to, is to, to work through you? And so this is what happens. God has Abram get a sheep and a cow and a goat and some birds and cut them in half and lay them out on the ground. This is super weird, right? But this is what he has, he has, them, he has them do. And this is fascinating because at this time in history, apparently, this is the way serious contracts were made. You know, if I'm going to buy Mike's boat, I'm going to shake his hand. Right? If I'm going to go buy a house, I'm going to write my name on a dotted line. Apparently then they cut a cow in half and walked between it right? as a way of saying, may this happen to me if I break my promise to you. That's sort of the root of it. And so here is Abram questioning, are you really going to keep your promise, God? And God says, well, let's cut a covenant. That was actually the phrase. And literally the Hebrew means to cut a covenant. And, and Abram's probably thinking, wow, God's serious. He's He's going to hold me to my part of the bargain. <clears throat> We're going to cut a covenant together. So he cuts this, this, you know, and he actually, this isn't a dream or a story. This is actually what he does. He cuts these animals in half, lays them out on the ground. But here's the twist. Then he falls asleep. And the author says that God put him into a deep sleep so that Abram couldn't do anything. And then Abram wakes up just in time to see, he wakes up from this dream just in time to see uh, this flaming torch and this smoking pot, which he takes to be the presence of God, walking through the split cow, the split sheep, the split goats, the, the birds or whatever, without him. He's missed it. He's late to the meeting. He won't be there in time. God's moving through this promise, this agreement, and he didn't even show up in time. And so the question on the table was, how do I know that God will keep his promise? And God says, let's cut a covenant together. Let's make a contract, you and me, but then instead of binding Abraham to keeping his word, which is what Abram thinks is going to happen, God binds only himself. Isn't that crazy? He binds only himself. In other words, God says, I'm going to keep my promise no matter what you do, Abraham. 
no matter what you do, I'm going to keep my promise. My promise is going to be kept. It will not be dependent on your faithfulness. This is not if you and I keep our part of the deal. You're asleep. I'm going to cut this covenant and make a promise for my own name's sake. It's like like God recognizes Abraham is broken. He's going to fail. He's going to make mistakes. He's going to break his promises. And of course, when he does, he'll experience the natural consequences of his sin, which he does. But God is ultimately saying, it doesn't change the way I feel about you. It doesn't change my ability to use you in this world for my purposes. The point is this. I love you. That's my promise. I want to be with you. Nothing changes that. This is my promise, and I'll never break it. I'll never break it. Let's pray together. Grace to believe, grace to believe the truth revealed in your word. Now and in the dark hour, when we're just about sure that even you have changed the way you feel about us. Thank you that you've made a promise and you're keeping it. Pray for grace to receive it. Our relationship with you would be marked more than anything by an assurance of your love for us, that you're always moving toward us. Please have mercy on us, Lord. May we be people who are living in this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand up with me. We're not... We're not done with our worship experience. We had some folks last week visit us for the first time, and they left at this point because I didn't tell them that we weren't done. Um, But we're not. This is just us trying to engage in the midst of worship in an application of the word right away. Um, And then we will continue with some time of response, which is really so important, friends, because we just get taught all kinds of information all the time, and we need to take time to to absorb and to respond to it. So before we do that, And actually to start doing that, let's uh, apply this truth to one another. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Greet those around you. Extend welcome and love to those right around you.